Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're talking about The Prisoner of Zenda by Anthony Hope. This was published in 1894 and is the number one in the Prisoner of Zenda series, but I don't think it was written with a sequel in mind. Oh, definitely not. I mean, honestly, I think Anthony Hope wrote this book and it like was like smash hit. And he's like, I better write a sequel. So this is a part of our classic romance series. This is not a traditional romance novel. And in fact, I think you could argue this is more like big R romance than small R romance. Oh, uh, definitely. Yes. Um, So it's a little bit outside of our usual scope, but it's got enough little R romance. And guys, it's just so good. This book is amazing. It's so much fun. It's, It's great. It's free if you use Project Gutenberg and I just highly recommend it. So here's the book jacket. Anthony Hope's swashbuckling romance transports his English gentleman hero, Rudolph Rassendel, from a comfortable life in London to fast-moving adventures in Ruritania, a mythical land steeped in political intrigue. Rassendel bears a striking resemblance to Rudolph Elfberg, who is about to be crowned king of Ruritania when the rival to the throne. Black Michael of Strelsau attempts to seize power by imprisoning Elfberg in the castle of Zenda. Rassendil is obliged to impersonate the king to uphold the rightful sovereignty and ensure political stability. Rassendil endures a trial of strength in his encounters with the notorious Rupert of Hensau and a test of a different sort as he grows to love the princess Flavia. Or Flavia, I don't know. Flavia, right? I like think of it as Flavia because it's I don't want to think of Flavor Flav. I, it's just much nicer as Flavia. I, I agree. Yeah. Um. So this is very much a book jacket written about the book's like historical place. I feel like mm-hmm. more than a book jacket written to like actually entice a reader to pick it up, which yeah. is a real shame because this book holds up so well. It's it's it does it really holds up really well. We've been talking about books written right around now or 30 years later so we're talking about Dorothy Sayers and that stuff and we're talking about how sometimes you get a little bit of some racism or some little things around the side and I feel like that's not in this book at all which is pretty fun well not even the problem problematic elements like there are things in Dorothy Sayers that are obviously commonplace parlance describing day-to-day life that are words I just don't know yeah whether they're discussing, you know, a meal or a type of service or something to do with cars, like a lot of the language of cars in the Peter Whimsey books just kind of go over my head. And this book really doesn't feel dated in any way. I think because we have so much of like the romantic swashbuckling hero that's still very much in society and in literature yeah. and entertainment that we consume, that this feels in terms of its like language and its plot construction and its like character tropes, mm. very timeless. It is. Yeah, it is. If you think of the historical romances we read, I think it's similar enough to those that mm. there are some things that you recognize and you're like, Oh yeah, I totally know what they're talking about here. Yes. But so there are a lot of tropes, both because this was the f- seminal work mm-hmm. in the Ruritanian romance genre. Yes, I mean, the genre is named after this book. He named his mythical European country Ruritania, and there, then that spawned, like, 
dozens of novels with set in some kind of mythical European small you know province or country but they're known as Ruritanian romances because this was the first and I think the other thing that makes Ruritanian romances distinct as opposed from say fantasy or any other like romantic world building book is everything else about Europe is the same mm-hmm. Ruritania is just like stuck somewhere on the map between the borders you know so it's supposed to be like a fiction set in the real world in every way, except it's Ruritania instead of a real place. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of um, A Prince on Paper a little bit. I know this really bugged yes. you, but for me, I was like, oh, this is just Rudolph Rassendil. <laughs> That's true. And I think With maybe the, it is the historical context that makes it easier for me to be like, okay, I get it. And I'm fine with it. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's super, it's super fun. People use it. A lot of the tropes even today that were sort of established by Anthony Hope. Yeah. This is definitely a book that makes you realize how many things like it you've already consumed in your life Mm -hmm. when you finally come across it. And I had this experience the first time I read the picture of Dorian Gray and like the first time I read or the first time I saw Star Wars Like you kind of, even if you hear about it, you don't recognize how often like these tropes and these themes have been referenced throughout your life until you finally sit down to read it yourself. Yes. So let's talk about some of those tropes. I mean, the big one, well, one of the big ones, there are a lot of big ones, but one of them is the identical cousins trope. Yes. So apparently, so basically this, this book is written in the first person by Rudolf Rassendel, who is the second son of a nobleman's family. So he'll, he's never going to inherit the whatever it is, earldom or barony or whatever. I, I'm going to be honest. I don't remember what his brother, what title his brother holds. Uh, but it's written from his perspective. And he talks about how there's this legend in the family that one of the, I guess, the countess you know, a couple of generations back had a, a an affair with the king of Ruritania. And so no, the prince of Ruritania, excuse me, the prince of Ruritania. And um, so now all of the descendants in of this earldom or whatever uh, ha- are actually descended from Ruritanian royalty. Right. So it was a little more scandalous than that, which yes. I love which is like, that's the kind of like fake royal intrigue I totally cling to. The Prince of Ruritani had come to England to visit on like a diplomatic mission, but then ended up in getting into a duel for honor mm-hmm. with the former Earl of this family. And then while neither was killed in the duel, the English Lord who had been involved in the skirmish died of like pneumonia basically within a couple of months. And then, so the child was born posthumously to the Dowager Countess and nobody really knows who the father is, was, Yeah. but every couple of generations, a redhead who looks just like this Ruritanian prince happens to be born. Oh, I mean, it's so ridiculous. Like the, it, like literally it's the redheadedness. It's the whole thing. It's so funny it's so tropey it's perfect well so there's a couple of levels to this. there's the actual like relationship dynamic that he's the wastrel second son which is super tropey and sort of the complicated relationship he has with his brother because he's like the evidence of the family's nefarious past 
And then there's the relations with their distant cousins in Ruritania Mm -hmm. and like the familial bonds of blood across borders. And then there's a lot of drama with the cousins in Ruritania and the Ruritanian family. Yeah. But, and I mean, that's the whole point of the book is the, uh, is that drama, which we will talk about. But the other thing I love too, is that they named him Rudolph after the Ruritanian family, like Rudolph, I guess, is a, a name that's used very often in Ruritania for their royalty. It was and, the name of the prince who knocked right. up their ancestor. And so they named their second son Rudolph. As like a wink, wink, look at our dirty laundry. <laughs> I guess it was, it's really funny. It's very funny. It's very British too in the beginning, because this all is in the, you know, the first chapter uh, and it's all about how Rudolph Rassendel decides, I'm going to go visit Ruritania. Basically, he's like, he wants to avoid getting a job as long as possible. And so he decides to go on a tour of Europe. And while there, he's like, I guess I'll visit Ruritania. I've always wanted to see this place where one of my ancestors probably came from. And there's a coronation going on. So there's a big party. Now's a great time to go. <laughs> uh, uh, it's 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 so funny. Uh, and then, you know, let's go through the tropes as we talk about the novel, because he goes to Ritania, and then as soon yeah. as he gets there, it's a small principality or it's a small kingdom. I'm not sure exactly, you know, what its political state is, but everyone knows everyone. everyone knows everyone else. Uh, and he goes to a hotel and at the hotel, one of the serving girls is like, oh, you look just like King Rudolph. Uh, so, um, basically, he can trade on this similarity in looks with his royal cousin. But the best part, too, is that what has separated them up to the necessary point in the novel and what will continue to separate them aesthetically for the rest of their lives is their choice of ridiculous facial hair. Yes. Like, they're described as having these very different, but, like, period swooping beards and mustaches I forget mm-hmm. exactly what he calls his but I was laughing at like how absurd and like twisty mustache it seemed yes yes and they both you know one of them's got the little like a goatee and one of them's got like the full beard or you know whatever it's it's very funny it's really funny <laughs> so so we've got this secret or mistaken identity both it starts out as mistaken identity uh, and then it gets more purposeful afterwards Yeah, it's interesting. So when Rudolph, the English, gets to uh, Ruritania, first of all, he had, like we said, kind of impromptu decided to go to this country for this coronation. And he gets there and he realizes like, oh, people have been planning this for months. I can't even get into the capital city, let alone get a room there. But he also did this impulsively and ended up following an actress that he'd like heard of and like socialized with in circles in the place he'd been prior to going to Ruritania because she was having an affair with one of the Ruritanian princes. I mean, the so whole thing. All of these like really cir- like faux circumstantial like happenings. But then they get there and he's like, oh, I heard the king's here and I'm just interested in seeing him. So I'm going to wander in the woods and hope I bump into him. And, and he does. This works. 
Uh-huh. I mean, so, like I he, said, it's a small kingdom. Everyone knows everyone else, so. But what the the rest of the world up on Mauritania, as it maybe would be for a major country. True. So while um, Rudolph, who was the legitimate heir of the king and his first wife, is preparing to be coronated, he does have a half-brother who's the child of the king and his second. So it's, yeah, morganatic marriage. And so the populace is sort of torn with some supporting Rudolph, the rightful king of a noble woman mm-hmm. and the king's second son, who, going to be honest, though, don't get why anyone supports him. I mean, the reason you don't get it, because I, I always wondered that myself when I read this book, but then I reread it and I was like, oh, it's because King Rudolph is kind of a jackass. Yes, Rudolph is not <laughs> great, but Michael is also not great. Yeah, but then I guess you're just like, oh, which not great guy is better for me personally? Yeah. So I was like, okay, I kind of get it. However, there is a great option. Unfortunately, she was the niece of the prior king and therefore Black Michael, what is, which is what the bastard son is known as. Well, not bastard, son of the morganatic marriage versus King Rudolph. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the king, the deceased king's niece, Flavia. Princess Flavia. So everybody loves Flavia. Everyone in the whole country just loves Flavia. Including Michael and Rudolph. Yep. I mean, they either one of them would marry her in a heartbeat. And it's kind of confused intentionally as to whether that's because of what, like, her political clout mm. or their feelings about her. Yeah. But she's also beautiful. Oh, of course. And so she's she, got the red hair, the Elfberg red. She's got the red hair. She's, she's, she's beautiful. She's the perfect, will be the perfect queen because whoever she marries is going to be the king, right? So she'll be the perfect queen, um, which brings us to the next trope, which is just like the honor versus love, right? Right. Which, so I don't want to spoil anything about this because this book is also crazy short. It's, it's pretty short. If we, if we start talking about any part of it, you will recognize it from like literary themes throughout history. So I really want to avoid it. But let's just say that Rudolph Rassendil, the limited perspective narrator of our tale, ends up himself falling in love with, a Flav- with Flavia. But the Flav. In a, the Flav. <laughs> but in a situation where he can't be honest about his identity or purpose yes. in Ruritania. Yes. I mean, it honestly, I remember us going on in raptures about when we talked about shards of honor or when we mm-hmm. talk about any of the Lady Sherlock's about how like honor is so important. And I mean, it's it's the same thing here. So much so, except intentionally, hope does not go into a ton of detail with the world building in the wider like you know what Rudolph is doing and why, but you get no details on what mm-hmm. that actually means and like day to day and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, you, you know, you're told he's in Ruritania for over three to four months and you get like maybe four days of those that are really described. It's just, it's not a book that dwells on the world building in a way I actually think serves the book very, very, very well, but where, the choice between honor and like love of country and love is so complicated mm-hmm. and nuanced. And you as the reader, like really feel for the dilemma they have to make. Yes. The dilemma here is much more cut and dry because you don't have any of that wider context. It's literally just 
he's in love with her and would like to be with her. Yes. But that would require basically saying his time and routine and everything they achieved was for nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's not like you care about like the dentist down the street or the society or no. like, it's literally a very, very, very personal choice. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's done really well emotionally. I feel because you as oh, a reader yes. feel it too. You're like, Oh, I wish he would pick this, but then if he does this, then it, that would mean that he's not the man we thought he was the whole time. I mean, it's just really great. It's so good. And it's also so good because like, Rupert, the English, is a wastrel in a different way than Rupert, the Ruritanian. Rudolph, Rudolph. Sorry. It's it's really hard because Rupert is one of the villains in the book. Yeah. There's a villain named Rupert, and then the main character is Rudolph. So it's not, it's hard. And so is the king. And so is the king. So Rudolph, the English, not Rudolph the king, just to make the distinction, is a wastrel in a different way. And he doesn't have much purpose in his life. Mm-hmm or any real desire to do anything. And it's also heartbreaking because in the course of the novel, you really see his potential mm-hmm. and what he's capable of. Yes. And not only does he not get to take any credit for his actions, but he also kind of doesn't get to keep the personal growth. Yeah. It's in, it's it's in a way that's like so emotionally resonant. It's, it's really good really good (laughs) so I personally I really like the first person limited perspective because it's all from Rudolph's point of view um and I think Hope does something really interesting which is Rudolph is trying to present himself as this wastrel guy uh but through his actions and through his thoughts you get how he's actually acting and how he's actually being really honorable and a really good guy so he's actually kind of down trying to downplay his own strengths Mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting one there by others expectations yes yeah so but like who why should why does he care these are his memoirs why is he trying to downplay it you know what I mean right but it's it's really interesting it's really fun and I think it's very kind of British as well so it gives you that that sense of time and place that we've been talking about a lot recently. I love fake memoirs, I've decided. Yeah. I think yeah. they might be like my favorite thing because it's, you're right. The first person limited perspective here, one, Rudolph is a very observant narrator in a very authentic way. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that I think he picks up on everything and it's not like he's aware of stuff he shouldn't be. But I, like, love just the little descriptions of the way he interacts with his sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Like, those small moments are really captured. And, you know, as I said, this book does not do a ton of world building. It doesn't do a ton of, like, political intrigue at a micro level. Mm-hmm. And so it would have been really easy for a lot of the supporting cast to like become part of the background. Yeah. And they don't like, there are a couple of really key supporting cast members that I do feel like get fleshed out Mm -hmm. to the point that one of my favorite romantic tropes, we have the courting courtiers. Yes. One of the King's men and one of the princesses women, you know, have a thing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotta keep that going. 
you know, gives their, gives their masters an excuse to hang. Right. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's definitely like when you read those historical romances and you have your chaperone, your maid, who's going to be chaperone. And then you're like, Oh, you go talk to the, footman. you know, yeah. Or like the uncle of my, you know, desired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, can we, can we do that? Yeah. Yeah. I, it was, there's so many things about this book that really do make you realize how thin the line between like adventure novel and romance is in some ways this reminded me so much of like Errol Flynn and Three Musketeers in its like washbuckling quippiness but it was also like one explicit sex scene away from being a romance novel oh yeah this this is great and something else that's kind of fun as a romance reader is that this is all from the man's perspective and I feel like you don't you almost never get that in a romance novel you either get you switch off perspective. So like first person, the man, mm-hmm. one chapter, first person, the woman, one chapter, or you get it third person limited, or you get it. If it's first person, it could possibly be the woman's perspective, but you're almost never going to have the man's perspective. Right. And I think one of the ways that this book could seem a little dated is in how very princess in the towery Flavia can be. And yeah. to a lesser degree, Antoinette can be. But I think they're both still distinct characters. Uh, like, yeah. they're not just princesses in the tower. And the man is writing his memoirs of the one time in his life he got to be a hero. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't necessarily think it's problematic that he made his love so like in need of rescue yeah to a degree like from the wider evils yeah and like a little naive in a way that like I can totally buy that Flavia was going to be a great queen Mm -hmm. and was less emotionally volatile than Rudolph recalled her as in these memoirs because he was remembering their passionate tempestuous short time together yeah exactly and I mean he's writing just about their relationship he doesn't know what she's really like as a ruler although he does say that she's very good well and he also kind of acknowledges in a way that the tragic thing about their love story is that it existed in this bubble mm-hmm. for yeah. him for him and it would be so interesting to read her perspective on it mm-hmm. because they were living two very different experiences until the very end yeah it's Anyway, uh, this book is really fun. It is a quick read and it is free. So if you have not read this book, you should go out and rectify that immediately because. Oh my God. Yes. It's really great. There's no excuse to not having read this and you will, I think we'll be a better reader. Yes. In terms of like getting references. Like I'm so excited to reread He Shall Thunder in the Sky and Falcon at the Portal. Now uh-huh. that I have this context. Yes. Yeah. And I've read and the I mean, 20 times. I know. But like, I, I remember reading it and I was like, oh, I was like, Lane, have you read Prisoner of Zenda? And you were like, no. And I was like, oh my God, like you have to read it. And I'm so mad. I didn't just listen to you immediately. That's okay. This is a book I'm going to reread. I loved this book. Oh yeah. I'll just, I'll end with just one phrase, uh, not a phrase, but just 
I, this is what stuck with me when I read it. So I read this like in high school, it was hanging around my house. I think my mom owned it. Mm -hmm. And I still remember it's just the red rose at the end. Because it's perfect. It's like so perfect. But it's so good because like the red rose as a gesture really underscores the longing of their romance. Uh, yeah. But the way he obtains it really underscores the friendship and camaraderie. Yeah. The it's whole like, thing. Talk about, I have mixed feelings about the late 1800s, early 1900s in literature, because it's also, and this is like well beyond the scope of this book, but it's when a lot of books were serialized mm-hmm. and authors were paid by the word. Mm-hmm. And that is my biggest problem with Dickens. Mm-hmm. I think he used 10 words where he could have used one. Sure. But then you have authors like Anthony Hope and Oscar Wilde and Ryder Haggard who write these really punchy short stories because they don't have to meet any word count. Yeah. Like books, novels didn't have an expected length. Yeah. And so they're just these really captivating short stories. And I don't know why they're not more widely consumed now. Oh, I I got one of our our. Lane's former colleagues, my current colleague into it. And he's been reading just all of these basically adventure novels set written in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So, so he's now reading through Ruritanian romances. Basically, Ruritanian romances, Scarlet Pimpernel, Phantom of the Opera, all of which we should read for this is classic romance. So. Okay, so guys, buckle up. It's going to be a lot of classic romance coming up. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe.